understanding of which groups of people in our in our economy are essential has kind of turned inside out. People are arguably risking their lives to put food on my table, to bring you know, to fill shelves in my local grocery store. episode of the Keynotes Podcast from the Keystone Policy Center. I'm your host, Marcus Chavez. I'm thrilled to be producing a new batch of episodes for this podcast, and I'm grateful to those organizations like the Denver Foundation that support this effort. I'm a firm believer in the power of storytelling. I believe narratives literally shape our perceptions, thoughts, and ultimately our lives. And either for our betterment or detriment, those narratives aren't always based in fact. Unfortunately, I think COVID-19 has been a blinding example of that. All of this is to say that in our current era, it is all the more important to continue highlighting those stories that often go ignored because they bring people together from different perspectives. And the story we're going to highlight over the next two episodes is one that needs to be told. One thing the pandemic has seared into our lexicon is the phrase essential worker. Certainly many Americans have faced economic destruction at the hands of the pandemic, the potential of which has caused us to heap unimaginable burdens on the shoulders of our essential workers. These are the heroic doctors, nurses, and administrators in our overworked and still underappreciated healthcare industry. Our teachers continuing to educate our children, even during the rise of the Delta variant here in the U.S. And even the agricultural workers who make it possible for us to have food in this country. And yet so many who, like myself, have been privileged enough to work from home, fail to have a full understanding of who these essential workers actually are. A study from the Center for Migration Studies released in May 2020 detailed comprehensive estimates on workers in the United States employed in the, quote, essential critical infrastructure categories defined by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. The study found that immigrants in the labor force work at disproportionate rates in essential critical infrastructure jobs. Specifically, 69% of all immigrants in the labor workforce and 74% of undocumented workers are essential infrastructure workers, compared to 65% of the native-born workforce. To quote directly from the CMS website, the paper shows that immigrants are working, often at great risk to their health and lives, to keep Americans safe, healthy, fed, and poised for economic recovery. Immigrants comprise 16% of U.S. health care sector workers, 26% of home health care workers, 26% of construction workers, 23% of U.S. transportation industry workers, 28% of workers in telecommunications, and 31% of U.S. agricultural employees. It's this last category of workers in agriculture that we're going to discuss today. I grew up in southeast Idaho in a town that bills itself as the potato capital of the world. We're even home to the Idaho Potato Museum. In fact, the first executive director of that museum happens to be my grandmother. But I digress. The main point I'm trying to make here is that the potato harvest in the fall is a critical time for the region I grew up in in my home state. There were even some school districts that closed school to allow kids time to work the harvest. My uncle is a farmer, and when I was in the sixth grade, he asked if I wanted to work on his potato farm during the harvest to earn some money. I said yes and began working alongside with my best friend. We were tasked with picking dirt clods. Basically, after the potatoes were harvested in the field, they would pass from the truck along this long conveyor belt on their way to be stored in the cellar. As the potatoes passed along the conveyor belt, we would pick out all the dirt clods and rocks that we would see. Other than standing on my feet for long stretches at a time, it was not very labor-intensive. 
But as you know, that is not the case for every crop. Many crops require hard, labor-intensive work to be harvested, and that work is often done by foreign-born workers. Robin Tudor Markham, who is the director of the North Carolina Agromedicine Institute, explains more. In the United States, we are very accustomed to having the fruits and the vegetables that we like to have not only every day, but also for special occasions. Those fruits and vegetables require intense labor. Unfortunately, in the United States, we do not have enough domestic labor who are willing to do that work. Because we don't have sufficient domestic labor, it means that we're dependent on migrant and seasonal labor. As I referenced earlier, it isn't just agriculture in which we rely on immigrant labor. Our economy is fully dependent on foreign-born workers. Brad Sperber, a senior policy director for the Keystone Policy Center, offers some insight. I think many Americans, maybe most, don't have a very clear understanding of the ways in which we depend on streams of migrant seasonal workers for our economy to do what we expect it to do. There are several industries that rely on these worker populations for a high percentage of their workforce. Construction, hospitality, domestic services like childcare, food service, meat processing and packing, and definitely farming. Um, you know, Think of labor-intensive crops, not fields of grain with combines moving through them, but the kinds of foods and other commodities that human hands need to touch at various points, like sweet potatoes, blueberries. Um, Christmas trees was part of my education. Um, cucumbers and lettuce and tobacco. Um, the I believe the largest number still is from Mexico, but many are coming from Latin American and Caribbean countries and, and changing the, the demographics of that workforce that it was much more likely to involve American citizens two generations ago. While being critical to the economy, foreign-born workers also face many challenges in seeking to earn a living, ranging from the obvious ones like language barriers or lack of transportation, to lesser-known challenges like not having an advocate in a foreign country. Here's Brad with more. There can be more points of vulnerability in which the worker uh, has less control over and less understanding of what's happening to them. Um, have they paid um, a fee for access to this job that technically is illegal on both sides of the border? Were they charged inappropriately for... Uh, transportation from their home country or for housing? Uh, are they being paid what they promised? Is the work what they were, what was represented to them? Do they still have possession of their, um, their passport and other important documents of identification? And clearly, the global pandemic heightened the vulnerabilities faced by this workforce. Many of the known safety measures promoted by the CDC and other health leaders are not possible with this workforce, and yet it is still an essential workforce, one that the country relies upon to have food. Robin Tudor Markham explains further. When farm workers travel, they travel in a group. So for instance, when our H-2A workers are leaving Monterey and coming into the United States, they may be on a bus with 50 or 60 
other farm workers in very close quarters. When they arrive here, they are going into migrant housing, otherwise known as congregate shelter. So they may be sharing a room with several other individuals, beds spaced three feet apart, or maybe bunk beds. And then when they're transported out to the fields or if they're going to a packing shed or someplace else to work, again, they're going to be in that congregate setting, making it very difficult for them to socially distance. Brad Sperber adds his thoughts on the issue. Now that we are living in a time of global pandemic with a kind of social and economic disruption that might have seemed unfathomable to most of us, our understanding of which groups of people in our in our economy are essential has kind of turned inside out. People are arguably risking their lives to put food on my table, to bring or to fill shelves in my local grocery store. If they are essential, then they need a level of care, access to affordable care, to personal protective equipment, um, and to credible, consistent information about safety hazards, um, about public health measures. I circle back to where I started at the top of this episode. The economic and health devastation caused by this pandemic are widespread, but we've disproportionately heaped the burden of holding up the economy and preserving our way of life on certain groups of people, many of which we never see. And it isn't just the farm worker we've piled this responsibility upon. It's worth noting that farmers have also been dealt their share of challenges during this ongoing chapter of history. We read accounts of significant changes in production and or demand due to COVID. In the same stretch of time, farmers have experienced extreme weather events such as hurricanes and felt the effects of international trade disputes. There are also instances of intertwined families, sometimes multi-generations of farmers and workers with shared goals and traditions, suffering together the interruptions to livelihood, threats to health and safety, and even loss of life. Fortunately, there is a group of agriculture stakeholders that have come together to navigate these complicated issues and help develop solutions. And not only are they tackling the policy issues related to agriculture in the Southeast United States, they're also stepping up to educate, supply, and protect farm laborers in the era of COVID-19. On the next episode of Keynotes, I'll tell you about the Farm Labor Practices Group. So this effort that FLPG is supported is opening a lot of doors and a lot of opportunities with farms that quite frankly, we've never worked with before. So I think this is making a much larger impact than even FLPG had thought initially. Keynotes is a production of the Keystone Policy Center a 501c3 nonprofit organization based out of Keystone, Colorado, which for more than 45 years has empowered leaders to reach common higher ground. This episode has been made possible by a contribution from the Denver Foundation. If you would like to offer feedback about the podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, please email me at mchavez at keystone.org. That's M-C-H-A-V-E-Z at keystone.org. If you would like to learn more about the Keystone Policy Center, visit our website at keystone.org. Thank you.